good to be with you this weekend, uh, this Memorial Day weekend. So hope you're having a good Memorial Week Day weekend and that you will tomorrow as you gather with friends and family. Um, Memorial Day weekend, uh, this year is sort of a gap weekend for us as a church family. We've just come out of a Reminding us that um, we are who we are as a people, as a church, because he is who he is. And we reflect the things about who we are because they come from who he is. And we'll be getting into that starting next week. We're really looking forward to that. But on this Memorial Day weekend, we wanted to pause and um, talk a little bit about memorials. But before we do, um, most of you know Memorial Day weekend, uh, Memorial Day rather, is an American holiday where... Uh, we honor the men and women who have given their lives um, so that we can live in a country gather we're free to worship. Uh, at least for now, we've got freedom of speech, right? We can say the things we want, even in a place like this. And so we're, um, we're deeply grateful for that. There are places where that's not true. And, um, and there are people that have given a lot to make that the case. So, um, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, you could... Uh, you could just expect on a Memorial Day weekend, you would have people stand and you would honor them. Seems like in our culture today, we're at risk of, of associating ourselves in one way, shape, or form with something we might not do, but, uh, but that's all right. I really don't mind. So if you, if you um, have lost a friend or a family member um, in the service to this country, or if you've, if you've given yourself to service in this country, um, and that means that you've risked your life in some way, shape, or form, or you, you expected that you would. Would you stand so we can, just, we can just honor you this morning and say thank you? Is there someone like that here this morning? I think there probably is. Yeah. Hey, we just want to say thank you. I see you. We just want to say thank you. You know, Memorial Day started um, as Decoration Day. It was uh, in 1886. It was the first one in Waterloo, New York. And... The years following the Civil War, they started these decoration days because so many soldiers died in the Civil War. We had to create national cemeteries for them. And so people would, on decoration day, go and they would, they would bring decorations to the grave sites of those uh, men and women who died in service. Of course, in those days, um, mostly men. And, uh, and, and it found its way to become a national holiday in 1971. And so uh, we just paused for a moment to say we're, we're grateful, okay? Um, I think we would all recognize being here this morning that um, memorials are more than an American idea. Right? Memorials are not, they're not an American idea. Um, memorials are actually, a, a, they're a biblical idea. They're a biblical idea. God's people have created memorials for a long time. God's people have been in the practice of creating memorials for a long time. It's a biblical idea because God's people wanted to remember, often want to remember who God was and what God has done. They want to remember who he was to them and what he had accomplished for them. Memorials are a biblical idea. We see this in some of the earliest pages of the scripture. Matter of fact, we see the first memorial in scripture that we can recognize as, as a legitimate memorial that was actually built for a purpose to remember who God was and what God did in Genesis chapter 28. If you know your Bible, we refer to this as the story of Jacob's ladder, where God spoke to Jacob in a dream. And he promised Jacob a land and a people. He promised to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham, to give him a land and a people, and to bless all of the nations of the earth through him. Jacob wants to remember or memorialize this moment. 
So he has this dream and God speaks to him and God shows him these things and he wants to memorialize the moment. So he sets up a stone of remembrance to remember God and to remember the promise that God made to him and to his forefathers and the generations in front of him. And we pick it up in Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 18. You could read with me on the screen the latter part of this story. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. When I read that this week, I was like, I'm so thankful for like mypillow.com or whatever that is. Could you imagine sleeping on a stone pillow every night? I have a down pillow. It's so cozy. All right, back to Genesis. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will give and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, pretty simple things, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. God moves Jacob to set up his memorial because God wants his people to remember he keeps his promises. God wants his people to remember that he keeps his promises. And I don't know if this morning you need to remember, maybe you need to remember that God keeps his promises. God has promised that he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. God has promised that he'll provide for you, that he'll lead you, that he'll guide you. God has promised that he'll direct you into all the things that, that are, are needed for you to understand through the Holy Spirit. He'll direct you to the teachings of Jesus. God has promised that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. God has told us he, we have the mind of Christ. He's promised you can think like Jesus in any situation. There are all kinds of promises that God has made to us. Do you need to remember this morning? God keeps his promises. There's, um, there's another memorial. I'm just going to outline four of them very quickly here in the Old Testament. But this is the one revolving around Passover, when the first Passover was instituted, Exodus chapter 12. God speaks to Moses about instituting the Passover before the 10th plague comes. So before the 10th plague comes, God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. And God lays out the instructions for the Passover and why they're to have the Passover. God tells them ahead of time, it's meant to be a memorial. It's meant to be a remembrance for all of the generations of God's people so that they never forget. We talk about that sometimes as Americans, never forget. We look at things like 9-11 and we say, never forget. There are some more important things to never forget so that they will never forget, they will always remember God's character and his nature. In verse 14 of chapter 12, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Again, God wants his people to remember that he keeps his promises. And he always does, and he always will. Maybe this morning you need to remember 
Maybe you need to remember that God keeps his promises, especially when you're in a place where it might seem like he's forgotten that a bit. You know, God's people were in Egypt for hundreds of years. I mean, think about that for a moment. They were in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they were enslaved. They were given to slave labor. They were given to burdens that they could not carry. And it got to a breaking point, and God allowed it to get to that point, but God did not forget. And I know sometimes in our lives as individuals, as people, we might feel like God's forgotten. God made these promises. God, you made a promise. Have you forgotten? You said you would always provide, but things are looking pretty skimp right now for me. And sometimes we often forget that God's going to keep his promises to us as a people, not only as individuals, but as his people. Some people in his church today feel like, even in our nation, maybe going in a direction that will lead us to a place where, like, how, how will we function as God's people? God, will you keep your promises to protect us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us to flourish? Yeah, it might not always look like the way we want it to look like. Maybe you need a reminder this morning. I know sometimes that I do, that God keeps his promises, even when it feels like maybe he's forgotten. He has not forgotten. God does not forget. And God, based on his nature, always keeps his promises. He has to. If he said something, it has to come to pass. The third instance is um, what we see is the crossing of the Jordan River. We're kind of making our progression in the promises of God. We get to the Jordan River, and you probably know this story if you've been in church a while. God's going to take his people, you know, into the land of promise. But before they get there, they have to cross the Jordan River. It's sort of one more obstacle, one more thing for them to have to navigate, to trust God for. And as they go through the Jordan River, God tells them to take up 12 stones and to build a memorial to remember this event from literally generation to generation. We see it in a couple of passages, but this morning we'll look at Joshua chapter 4, starting in verse 5. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder. These were not small stones. According to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in a time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you will tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Again, Village Church, God wants his people to remember. He keeps his promises to generations. From one generation to another, he keeps his promises. And maybe this morning you need to remember that he will always be faithful. He will be faithful to your generation as he was to the generation before you and as he will be to the generation after you. Some of you are grandparents and you remember, God was faithful to the generation before me and it feels like he was faithful to my generation. I look at my children and I think he's faithful to this generation. What is the next generation gonna look like? It just feels like we're moving in a direction. How can we say God's God's been faithful in the same way. God will be faithful in the same way to your children's generation, to your grandchildren's generation, and the children after them. He is faithful from generation to generation. 
you know, it comes to mind as I'm standing here that um, I didn't even think about this before, but, uh, you know, one of my daughters had, had a stone. It wasn't probably one that you had to lift, like, out of the Jordan on your shoulder. It was a small little rock. <laughs> but it just goes to show you God's faithfulness to, to his people. You know, there was a time when um, my family and I, we came to this piece of property, and we came here, and there was dirt. Like, this was, all, this was all just dirt, but the hedges were there. They were fully grown, grown in just like they are now. But this was all dirt. And, and we, we prayed and we asked that God would give us a church on this exact piece of land. But the thing about it is that, that we, had, we had come to this piece of land probably three or four years previous to that. Maybe, th- maybe two or three years previous to that. And, and um and we prayed and asked God to give us a church on this piece of land. It's just, I just went to a different church at the time. And one of my daughters, both of my daughters took stones, and one of them had the stone on her dresser, and it sat there, and, and she sat there, and, and it was to remind us to pray and ask God to give us a place. And it's just so interesting, you know, when we came and we stood behind those hedges with some other people from our church, and we looked and we saw at this moment that this church building was built, and one of my daughters looked at it, and it was like, Dad, you know, we asked Jesus to, to give us a church here, and I have this rock, and it was sat on my you know, dresser, yes, you did, and like, is that our church? And at the time, the answer was no, no. It's not our church, it's someone else's church, but they might let us use it. And lo and behold, in the promises of God, wasn't the way that we anticipated, but there's a church on this building, and somehow <laughs> I helped to pastor it. It's amazing, God's faithfulness to his people from one generation to another. I'll never forget it. My children understanding, God is faithful. He will be faithful to the next generation. He'll be faithful to the next generation of people at the village church. We see God raising them up right now. It's beautiful to see. God will be faithful. He always keeps his promises. The last one this morning I want to look at in the Old Testament is is, uh, the covenant renewal. It's also in the book of Joshua. A little later on, chapter 24. Joshua renews the covenant after they broke it. They get into the promised land. They cross the Jordan River and they break God's covenant again as they are accustomed to doing. And Joshua sets up a memorial of remembrance so that they will remember their sin, the consequence of their sin. They'll make a vow to God. They'll say they'll keep it. Verse 25, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of the Lord. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. I think Joshua could have said, when you deal falsely with your God. God wants his people to remember He keeps his promises, even when we don't. God wants his people to remember. He keeps his promises even when we don't. And again, maybe this morning you need to remember that promise or that reality, that God keeps his promises even when we don't. We have made promises, and we haven't kept them. The Bible says it's pretty important that when you make a vow to God, you keep it. And I'm sure most of us in our life have said, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. And he did it, but we didn't. (laughs) He continues to keep his promises. 
I hope you get the point here through the Old Testament. This is only four examples. There are many. God wants his people to be a people who remember. God wants his people to be a people who remember. Question this morning, what is the most important memorial? What is the most significant remembrance in the Bible? You think Old Testament, think New Testament. What is the most significant memorial? What's the most significant remembrance in Scripture? The cross. And what memorializes the cross? You can say it. It's communion. Someone said communion, the supper. The cross is the most significant memorial in all of Scripture. Communion is the thing that is the most significant memorial in all of Scripture because it memorializes the cross. It sets it in stone, so to speak. It's the supper where Jesus literally says, do this in remembrance of me. All of these promises, all of these remembrances, all of these memorials finding themselves to a culmination in the cross. Communion remembers the cross and the fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob through his promises to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed and not just with material blessings as we tend to focus on in our great country but with spiritual blessings that are far greater right? because of what Jesus did on the cross. Communion remembers the cross and the fulfillment of God's promise to his people in Egypt that he would pass over their sin. Here's the thing. God's people were not perfect. They had to put the blood over their post and on the doorpost. Why? Because the angel of death would come for them too. They weren't guiltless. But God would pass over their sin and God would deliver them from Egypt and The cross is the ultimate culmination. It reminds us that God passes over our sin because he didn't pass over it on the cross. He he punished Jesus for our sake as Jesus took our sin and guilt and shame. And he will deliver us from being enslaved to sin so we can live a life of freedom that he's always invited us to from the beginning because of what Jesus did on the cross. Communion remembers the cross and the fulfillment of God's promise to his people, a land he promised to them, one much better than the the land flowing with milk and honey, an even better land, an even better place that his people are headed one day because of what Jesus did on the cross. And communion remembers the cross. It memorializes the cross, the fulfillment of God's promise to his people that our sin is great, but his mercy is greater. And that although there are natural consequences to sin, there are no, listen to me, ultimate consequence to our sin because our sin is wiped clean and forgiven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The cross is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, of all of the promises of God. And I believe this is one of the reasons why Jesus told us to do it in remembrance of him. Because it's where all his promises find their culmination. If communion is the greatest remembrance in the Bible, the greatest remembrance God has given us, then what are we supposed to remember when we take communion? And this morning I just want to touch on four things, the four R's of communion, so to speak. And... um, if you've been at the Village Church since the day we got here after we were prayed behind the hedges, you've been here for a dozen years or so, you may have heard these four R's before. 
And if you're new to the Village Church, maybe you haven't. But regardless, I want to remind you of them this morning because I believe they're here. They're right here in Scripture. I also want to just pause for a moment and say, like, some of you as Village Partners have expressed, you know, it's great that we get to take communion every Sunday. And we really enjoy when we take it together on first Sunday because that's a unique thing for us, one Sunday of the month. That's next Sunday. And in it may have made more sense to do this sermon on that Sunday, but here we are on this Sunday to prepare us for the one that's going to come. And so sometimes we've said, maybe a little bit more teaching on communion. And this morning provides us a great opportunity for that in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you have your Bible, I want to ask you to open it. And I'm going to be your scripture reader mid-sermon here, all right? Starting in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's nice to hear some of the pages opening or maybe some of your devices are powering on. If you don't have either of those, it will be on the screen. Starting in verse 17. Paul writes to a church in Corinth had, that had forgotten. The church that we're going to read about had forgotten. They'd forgotten the cross in some ways. They'd certainly forgotten about communion in many ways. Look at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. <laughs> because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. is that a horrible thing on Sunday? Like, you're getting together on a Sunday, and it's not for the better, it's for the worse? <laughs> Anyone want to come to church like that? No. I was a church in Corinth. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead to his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. See, the church in Corinth was, was divided by classes, most likely. Like, they had what our equivalent of first Sunday every Sunday. They would share a meal together every, every time they gathered, and that would overflow into the communion meal. But think like a meal after church with like a lot of great food and a lot of great wine, and like it's all set up, and they go in their day to enjoy it, but the rich people get to church early, and they eat everything. Because they have means to get there and they have means to provide. And by the time the poorer Christians get there, there's nothing left. There's nothing left for communion. There's nothing left for the meal after the meal. They're divided. They've taken advantage of one another. They've wronged one another. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after, say, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and are ill. And some have died. God takes this seriously. 
But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Wrapping it up, so then, my brothers, verse 33. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give you directions when I come. Four things we should remember about communion that are revealed, I believe, in this communion passage. The first one is this. We should remember to reflect. You might say, well, Matt, that seems a little bit redundant. (laughs) Does it remember mean reflect? Well, it means something similar, but the word in Greek here for remember literally means that. It means to remember to remember. (laughs) To remember to reflect. To remember to recognize. To remember to reconsider. It's what the word Jesus is using actually means. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And it comes to mind that there's two things in particular that we should reflect upon. One, we should reflect upon what Jesus endured for us. We should reflect upon what Jesus endured for us. The process from Gethsemane to Golgotha. I know Good Friday in particular is a moment during the year where we reflect on this more than any other moment in the year. But, but there are moments throughout the year. There are moments when we gather, when we receive communion. We should reflect in some way about what Jesus endured from Gethsemane to Golgotha. The physical death of Jesus and then the emotional, the spiritual trauma as Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured a lot for us. And we should remember that. You know, sometimes it's hard to look back on difficult circumstances, isn't it? Maybe you've done a life map exercise before or something like that where you, you kind of chronicle your life in some way and it's hard to look back at a past moment where there's a lot of pain or it was really difficult. We're tempted just to stuff that stuff down or just to move past it, to focus on some more positive things. But, but sometimes as we focus on those things or at least look at them in some way, there's something formative in it for us. And the cross is kind of like that. I know that's not a perfect analogy, but the cross is kind of like this. It's, it's sort of hard to look at. It's hard to think about all that Jesus actually endured for us, but it is the most, one of the most formative things for us. Reflect on what Jesus endured for us, but, but we also reflect on what Jesus, listen, insured for us. Like when we reflect on what Jesus endured for us, we realize there are so many things that he insured for us. Three in particular that I can think of off the top of my head, maybe you can as well. Forgiveness, freedom, and, and a foreknowledge of the things that are to come. Like as we reflect on the cross, as we receive communion, we remember that we are forgiven, <laughs> We're forgiven for all of our sin, past, present, and future, the small ones and the big ones, and all the ones in between, if we could categorize them that way. We are forgiven. We are free. I mean, it's one thing to be forgiven. Forgiveness is incredible, amen? I mean, mean, it's pretty good. And then there comes freedom along with that. Not only are we forgiven, but we're free now to live the life that God intended for us from the beginning. And we have a foreknowledge about what is to come. We already know where we're going. We know who we are, we know whose we are, we know where we're going, and it's all because of the cross. Village Church, remember to reflect. 
Second thing, we remember to repent. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and blood drinks judgment on himself. That's why many are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We need to repent by examining ourselves. And that's not always an easy thing to do, is it? (laughs) Examining yourself, looking at yourself. I mean... Sometimes when you get to the point where, you know, you're like, you wake up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror, you kind of don't want to look, you know. And let me just tell you, the older you get, the, I think the, the more real that is. So if you're in college, have fun for now. You know, like go, go for it. Look in the mirror. But, but I was reminded because we have an incredibly crisp camera in a room upstairs. And we did this interview with me and Tommy, and you'll see it soon. And, and David said, oh, this whole studio, it's awesome. And the camera is so powerful. Like it sees every part of you. <laughs> Every imperfection. Reagan was editing the, man, I'm so glad I shaved, you know, and I did my little face cream or whatever because, man, I got to tell you, you can see it all. It's hard to look in the mirror sometimes. It's hard to look inside. It's uncomfortable. That's even more uncomfortable than looking on the outside sometimes, isn't it? I think that's why we always keep ourselves busy, always have sound going, something in the background. Somewhere to go, something to do. Because when you sit down and you have nothing to do and nowhere to go, sometimes you start thinking about some things that are really difficult to think about. And we need to examine ourselves. We don't like the intrusiveness of that. But that is part of what we need to remember to do. And just a real four-step process really quickly just this morning for the sake of time. But the way this works is that we open ourselves to God. We say, Lord, I'm open to you. And, and I know that could be kind of a scary thing, but... We just want to open ourselves to him. If you could open yourself to anyone, who, 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 would, who else is there that you can open yourself to this way? And just declare, like, I'm totally open to you. And then you acknowledge your sin. And you're like, yeah, I see it, and I'm going to acknowledge it before you. I'm totally open before you anyway. I'm going to acknowledge my sin. And I'm going to confess it. I'm going to admit it. First John tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's righteous and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and we receive the forgiveness. And so whether it be this morning as you share communion during responsive worship or next Sunday when it's passed and there's a moment to pause and consider these things, just if you only have a few moments, which sometimes we do, you can pause for a moment, bow your head, your heart, open yourself to God, right? Acknowledge your sin, confess it, and receive the forgiveness that he offers. We need to repent by examining ourselves. And lastly, we need to repent from examining, other, examining others. You know, sometimes it's so hard for us to examine ourselves, isn't it? But it's so easy <laughs> to examine other people. It's so hard to, like, want to see the faults in ourselves. And it is so easy to see it in everyone else. And oftentimes in the church, that's what happens. And it's something that we need to repent of as well. We need to turn away from, from examining other people, from judging one another unnecessarily, right? The, commu- the Corinthians were making judgments about one another based on class. And that's never okay as Christians. We should remember to repent. 
Thirdly, you should remember to reconcile because sometimes we have made those judgments. Sometimes there have been divisions and there was in Corinth. Look at verse 17, but the following instructions I don't commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. He says, I hear there are some divisions among you and he believes it. He's like, yeah, I, I believe it based on the way you guys are acting. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper. You eat, you're eating. One goes ahead of his own meal. One goes hungry. One gets drunk. Are you kidding me? What? Do you not have houses to drink and eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? No. No. No, I will not. Paul says, I will not sit by and just watch you just create these factions and divisions and sin against each other. Like, no, no, I'm speaking into that. Paul brings the issue of offending one another full circle at the end in verse 33 and 34. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Defer to one another. You need to reconcile this. So when we come together as Christians to receive communion, we need to reconcile. Remember to reconcile. Remember to reconcile personally. That word reconcile literally means to restore friendship or, or harmony, which means you need to settle something. Maybe someone has offended you and you haven't let it go. Maybe you've offended someone and you're not sure they have. Before you receive communion, you should settle that. We have a week to do it before we share it together and we pass it. Maybe there's something that you need to settle between now and then. I would settle it. Communion is a family meal. And, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable sitting across the table from a family member when you know there's something wrong. Now, when you're a kid, it doesn't matter, right? I remember being a kid. I sat across from my sister. We sat, well, I had two sisters, and one of them gave me more trouble than the other one. But, you know, I hope you're not listening. I won't say your name. Anyway, so we sat across the, t- the table, f- and we just kick each other into the table, right? So, like, when you're kids, that's the way it goes. Like, if you're unsettled with each other, you just continue even at the table. You kick one another. Maybe your kids do that. I don't know. Um, but, you know, as you get older, that gets a little worse. So, like, imagine, like, getting to our age now, and, like, if you're sitting around a table with family members, and there's conflict, and it's unsettling, it's just everyone knows it. And you're too old and mature now to kick one another under the table, you're just mature enough to hold it against one another while you share a nice meal and not say anything, right? So, like, it's really uncomfortable. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you ever experience this around the holidays or anything like that? Okay. Communion is a family meal. And we don't kick each other on the table anymore, but sometimes we all sit in this, around the same table, so to speak, and it's really awkward. Paul says it shouldn't be like that. I found a paraphrase of this once, and, I, and I, I don't know where I found it. And then it was, there was a quote that went along with it. And uh, the author's unknown, because I saw this over 20 years ago, and I, I can't remember where it's from. I'm just saying it's not me. The Lord's Supper is a family meal, and the Lord of the family desires that his children love one another and care for one another. It is impossible for a true Christian to get closer to his Lord while at the same time he's separated from his fellow believers. How can we remember the Lord's death and not love one another? Beloved, if God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. Before we receive communion, we should remember to reconcile with each other personally. And I think we could say also reconcile with our church collectively. Like some of us are here this morning and 
And we're going to hear over the next 12 weeks that the Village Church exists to glorify God by growing and multiplying disciples who are delighting in Jesus and declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus because every village needs Jesus, every place, every person. They all need him. We all need him. But we can go through seasons in the life of the church where we're not reconciled to being partnered together in those things. And as village partners, we're supposed to be partnered together theologically, like we're in on this together. We're partnered missionally. There's a way that we're about doing this together. We're partnered relationally. We're in relationship with one another. We're in a group. We're connected to each other. And we're partnered financially. We're partnered materially. Like we give to the, to the, to the work of the ministry. And I want to say like our church is doing incredible with that right now. The generosity of the church has shown in this season, especially the youth group recently. It's an amazing to see. But sometimes we just need to be reconciled that we're not partnered in those ways. And maybe that's a moment during communion where you say, I want to be reconciled to that. I want to, I want to get right. The last thing we do is we, we remember to rejoice. It comes out in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Here it goes, until he comes. <laughs> until he comes. Jesus is coming again. And so we remember to rejoice as we look at communion. Remember his death. We proclaim his death. We remember to rejoice in our redemption, that we were guilty, but now we're seen as righteous before God. We had shame from our sin, and now we're accepted before God. We were lonely and estranged from God, but now we're reconnected to him again because of the cross. We remember our redemption, the things that God has redeemed. We remember all that. We also remember to rejoice in his return. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I hope there's a great joy in your life when you think about the return of Jesus. We remember to reflect. We remember to repent. We remember to reconcile. And we have to remember to rejoice. Although we're repenting, and that can be a somber moment, communion's a moment for rejoicing. Remembering all that we've been forgiven of and remember all that's in front of us. And I believe this is related to our good news this morning. It would be something like this that God always keeps his promises and has ultimately kept his promise in and through the cross. God always keeps his promises and he's ultimately kept his promise in and through the cross and that is something he wants us to remember. And so this morning as we get ready to respond, um, I want to remind you that, uh, I don't hope this is not really cheesy, but like I just wrote down, this is why Memorial Day is every day for Christians, right? This is why Memorial Day at least has to be every Sunday for Christians. As we gather together, we remember Jesus. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. We do it every week in remembrance of him. My hope is that this morning you will remember him. Now I said, look, I know this might have been great next Sunday as we all now would just pass the elements and share communion together, but here we are in a gap Sunday and it just seemed to fit. <laughs> we're moving toward next Sunday, but we're going to take communion this Sunday responsibly. If you're a guest with us at the Village Church, three weeks of the month we do this responsibly. During the songs, after the sermon, we receive communion in the back. And if you're a partner at the Village, I want this morning to ask you to just to consider these ways of responding this morning and remembering Jesus. And I might encourage you to grab a family member, grab some friends, take communion together. 
Grab some people from your community group. There's a person next to you, another partner. Grab them and ask them, would you like to share communion with us this morning? Maybe there's groups of five, six people in the back sharing communion together. That would be wonderful. And then prepare us for next Sunday as we get to take communion together. Village Church, would you pray with me? Lord, would you forgive us, uh, forgive us for forgetting? It's just amazing that um, Paul had to tell Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Um, but Lord, it's humbling to be reminded that we need reminders. Even reminders to remember you. Even reminders to remember what you've done for us at the cross. Even reminders to remember all that the cross means to us. All that you've done for us there all that you endured for us, all that you ensured for us, all of these things we need to be reminded. It's humbling, Lord, but we acknowledge we need to be reminded and we're so thankful that you're a God who lovingly reminds us and who knows our tendency to forget. So you give us this memorial. You give us this remembrance as a gracious gift to remember you. And so Jesus, this morning as we respond and as we sing, and as we share communion, we want to say we remember you. We remember you keep your promise. And we believe you always will. We ask these things in your name and we say them for your sake. Amen.